Section 13 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2, by James Boswell. Section 13, 1773, Continued. On Friday, May 7, I breakfasted with him at Mr. Thrale's in the borough. While we were alone, I endeavoured as well as I could to apologise for a lady who had been divorced from her husband by act of Parliament. I said that he had used her very ill, had behaved brutally to her, and that she could not continue to live with him without having her delicacy contaminated, that all affection for him was thus destroyed, that the essence of conjugal union being gone, there remained only a cold form, a mere civil obligation, that she was in the prime of life, with qualities to produce happiness, that these ought not to be lost, and that the gentleman on whose account she was divorced had gained her heart while thus unhappily situated. Seduced, perhaps, by the charms of the lady in question, I thus attempted to palliate what I was sensible could not be justified, for, when I had finished my harangue, my venerable friend gave me a proper check. "'My dear sir, never accustom your mind to mingle virtue and vice.' The woman's a whore, and there's an end on it. He described the father of one of his friends thus. Sir, he was so exuberant a talker at public meeting that the gentlemen of his county were afraid of him. No business could be done for his declamation. He did not give me full credit when I mentioned that I had carried on a short conversation by signs with some Eskimo who were then in London, particularly with one of them who was a priest. He thought I could not make them understand me. No man was more incredulous as to particular facts which were at all extraordinary, and therefore no man was more scrupulously inquisitive in order to discover the truth. I dined with him this day at the house of my friends, Messrs. Edward and Charles Dilly, booksellers in the poultry. There were present their elder brother Mr. Dilly of Bedfordshire, Dr. Goldsmith, Mr. Langton, Mr. Claxton, Rev. Dr. Mayo, a dissenting minister, the Rev. Mr. Toplady, and my friend the Reverend Mr. Temple. Hawksworth's compilation of the voyages to the South Sea being mentioned, Johnson, Sir, if you talk of it as a subject of commerce it will be gainful. If as a book that is to increase human knowledge, I believe there will not be much of that. Hawksworth can tell only what the voyages have told him, and they have found very little, only one new animal, I think. Boswell, But many insects, sir. Johnson, Why, sir, as to insects, Ray reckons of British insects twenty thousand species. They might have stayed at home and discovered enough in that way. Talking of birds, I mentioned Mr. Dane Barrington's ingenious essay against the received notion of their migration. Johnson, I think we have as good evidence for the migration of woodcocks as can be desired. We find they disappear at a certain time of the year and appear again at a certain time of the year and some of them, when wary in their flight, have been known to alight on the rigging of ships far out at sea. One of the company observed that there had been instances of some of them found in summer in Essex. Johnson, Sir, that strengthens our argument. Exceptio probat regulam. Some being found shows that, if all remained, many would be found. A few sick or lame ones may be found. Goldsmith, there is a partial migration of the swallows. The stronger ones migrate, the others do not. Boswell, I am well assured that the people of Otaite, who have the bread-tree, the fruit of which serves them for bread, 
laughed heartily when they were informed of the tedious process necessary with us to have bread, ploughing, sowing, harrowing, reaping, thrashing, grinding, baking. Johnson, why, sir, all ignorant savages will laugh when they are told of the advantages of civilised life. Were you to tell men who live without houses how we pile brick upon brick and rafter upon rafter, and that after a house is raised to a certain height, a man tumbles off a scaffold and breaks his neck. He would laugh heartily at our folly in building, but it does not follow that men are better without houses. No, sir, holding up a slice of a good loaf, this is better than the bread-tree. He repeated an argument, which is to be found in his rambler, against the notion that the brute creation is endowed with the faculty of reason. Birds build by instinct, they never improve, they build their first nest as well as any one they ever build. Goldsmith, yet we see if you take away a bird's nest with an eggs in it, she'll make a slighter nest and lay again. Johnson, sir, that is because at first she has full time and makes her nest deliberately. In the case you mention she is pressed to lay, and must therefore make her nest quickly, and consequently it will be slight. Goldsmith, the identification of birds is what is least known in natural history, though one of the most curious things in it. I introduce the subject of toleration. Johnson, every society has a right to preserve public peace and order, and therefore has a good right to prohibit the propagation of opinions which have a dangerous tendency. To say the magistrate has this right is using an inadequate word. It is the society for which the magistrate is an agent. He may be morally or theologically wrong in restraining the propagation of opinions which he thinks dangerous, but he is politically right. Mayo, I am of opinion, sir, that every man is entitled to liberty of conscience in religion, and that the magistrate cannot restrain that right. Johnson, sir, I agree with you. Every man has a right to liberty of conscience, and with that the magistrate cannot interfere. People confound liberty of thinking with liberty of talking, nay, with liberty of preaching. Every man has a physical right to think as he pleases, for it cannot be discovered how he thinks. He has not a moral right, for he ought to inform himself and think justly. But, sir, no member of a society has a right to teach any doctrine contrary to what the society holds to be true. The magistrate, I say, may be wrong in what he thinks, but while he thinks himself right, he may and ought to enforce what he thinks. Mayo. Then, sir, we are to remain always in error, and truth never can prevail, and the magistrate was right in persecuting the first Christians. Johnson. Sir, the only method by which religious truth can be established is by martyrdom. The magistrate has a right to enforce what he thinks and he who is conscious of the truth has a right to suffer. I am afraid there is no other way of ascertaining the truth but by persecution on the one hand and enduring it on the other. Goldsmith, but how is a man to act, sir? Though firmly convinced of the truth of his doctrine, may he not think it wrong to expose himself to persecution? Has he a right to do so? Is it not, as it were, committing voluntary suicide? Johnson, sir, as to voluntary suicide, as you call it, there are twenty thousand men in an army who will go without scruple to be shot at, and mount a breach for five pence a day. Goldsmith, but have they a moral right to do this? Johnson, nay, sir, if you will not take the universal opinion of mankind, I have nothing to say. 
If mankind cannot defend their own way of thinking, I cannot defend it. Sir, if a man is in doubt whether it would be better for him to expose himself to martyrdom or not, he should not do it. He must be convinced that he has a delegation from heaven. Goldsmith I would consider whether there is the greater chance of good or evil upon the whole. If I see a man who had fallen into a well, I would wish to help him out. But if there is a greater probability that he shall pull me in than that I shall pull him out, I would not attempt it. So were I to go to Turkey, I might wish to convert the Grand Signor to the Christian faith, but when I considered that I should probably be put to death without effectuating my purpose in any degree, I should keep myself quiet. Johnson, sir, you must consider that we have perfect and imperfect obligations. Perfect obligations, which are generally not to do something, are clear and positive, as thou shalt not kill. But charity, for instance, is not definable by limits. It is a duty to give to the poor, but no man can say how much another should give to the poor, or when a man has given too little to save his soul. In the same manner it is a duty to instruct the ignorant, and of consequence to convert infidels to Christianity. But no man in the common cause of things is obliged to carry this to such a degree as to incur the danger of martyrdom, as no man is obliged to strip himself to the shirt in order to give charity. I have said that a man must be persuaded that he has a particular delegation from heaven. Goldsmith. How is this to be known? Our first reformers, who were burned for not believing bread and wine to be Christ. Johnson, interrupting him. Sir, they were not burned for not believing bread and wine to be Christ, but for insulting those who did believe it. And, sir, when the first reformers began, they did not intend to be martyred, as many of them ran away as could. Boswell, but, sir, there was your countryman, Elwell, who you told me challenged King George with his blackguards and his redguards. Johnson, my countryman, Elwell, sir, should have been put in the stocks, a proper pulpit for him, and he'd have had a numerous audience. A man who preaches in the stocks will always have hearers enough. Boswell, but Elwell thought himself in the right. Johnson. We are not providing for mad people. There are places for them in the neighbourhood. Meaning Moorfields. Mayo. But, sir, is it not very hard that I should not be allowed to teach my children what I really believe to be the truth? Johnson. Why, sir, you might contrive to teach your children extra scandalum. But, sir, the magistrate, if he knows it, has a right to restrain you. Suppose you teach your children to be thieves. Mayo. This is making a joke of the subject. Johnson. Nay, sir, take it thus, that you teach them the community of goods, for which there are as many plausible arguments as for most erroneous doctrines. You teach them that all things at first were in common, and that no man had a right to anything but as he laid his hands upon it, and that this still is, or ought to be, the rule amongst mankind. Here, sir, you sap a great principle in society, property, and don't you think the magistrate would have a right to prevent you? Or, suppose you should teach your children the notion of the Adamites, and they should run naked into the streets, would not the magistrate have a right to flog them into their doublets? Mayo. I think the magistrate has no right to interfere till there is some overt act. Boswell. So, sir, though he sees an enemy to the state charging a blunderbuss, he is not to interfere till it is fired off? Mayo. He must be sure of its direction against the state. Johnson. The magistrate is to judge of that. He has no right to restrain your thinking because the evil centers in yourself, 
if a man were sitting at this table and chopping off his fingers, the magistrate, as guardian of the community, has no authority to restrain him, however he might do it from kindness as a parent, though indeed upon more consideration I think he may, as it is probable that he who is chopping off his own fingers may soon proceed to chop off those of other people. If I think it right to steal Mr. Dilly's plate, I am a bad man, but he can say nothing to me. If I make an open declaration that I think so, he will keep me out of his house. If I put forth my hand, I shall be sent to Newgate. This is the gradation of thinking, preaching, and acting. If a man thinks erroneously, he may keep his thoughts to himself, and nobody will trouble him. If he preaches erroneous doctrine, society may expel him. If he acts in consequence of it, the law takes place, and he is hanged. Mayo. But, sir, ought not Christians to have liberty of conscience? Johnson. I have already told you so, sir. You are coming back to where you were. Boswell. Dr. Mayo is always taking a return post-chase, and going the stage over again. He has it at half price. Johnson. Dr. Mayo, like other champions for unlimited toleration, has got a set of words. Sir, it is no matter, politically, whether the magistrate be right or wrong. Suppose a club were to be formed to drink confusion to King George III, and a happy restoration to Charles III. This would be very bad with respect to the state. But every member of that club must either conform to its rules, or be turned out of it. Old Baxter, I remember, maintains that the magistrate should tolerate all things that are tolerable. This is no good definition of toleration upon any principle, but it shows that he thought some things were not tolerable. Top lady, sir, you have untwisted this difficult subject with great dexterity. During this argument, Goldsmith sat in restless agitation, from a wish to get in and shine. Finding himself excluded, he had taken his hat to go away, but remained for some time with it in his hand, like a gamester, who at the close of a long night lingers for a little while to see if he can have a favourable opening to finish with success. Once, when he was beginning to speak, he found himself overpowered by the loud voice of Johnson, who was at the opposite end of the table, and did not perceive Goldsmith's attempt. Thus disappointed of his wish to obtain the attention of the company, Goldsmith, in a passion, threw down his hat, looking angrily at Johnson, and exclaiming in a bitter tone, "'Take it!' When Top Lady was going to speak, Johnson uttered some sound, which led Goldsmith to think that he was beginning again, and taking the words from Top Lady, upon which he seized his opportunity of venting his own envy and spleen under the pretext of supporting another person. "'Sir,' said he to Johnson, "'the gentleman has heard you patiently for an hour. Pray allow us now to hear him.' Johnson, sternly, "'Sir,' I was not interrupting the gentleman. I was only giving him a signal of my attention. Sir, you are impertinent. Goldsmith made no reply, but continued in the company for some time. A gentleman present ventured to ask Dr. Johnson if there was not a material difference as the toleration of opinions which led to action and opinions merely speculative. For instance, would it be wrong in the magistrate to tolerate those who preach against the doctrine of the Trinity? Johnson was highly offended, and said, "'I wonder, sir, how a gentleman of your piety can introduce this subject in a mixed company.' He told me afterwards that the impropriety was that perhaps some of the company might have talked on the subject in such terms as might have shocked him. 
or he might have been forced to appear in their eyes a narrow-minded man. The gentleman, with submissive deference, said he had only hinted at the question from a desire to hear Dr. Johnson's opinion upon it. Johnson, why then, sir, I think that permitting men to preach any opinion, contrary to the doctrine of the established church, tends, in a certain degree, to lessen the authority of the church, and consequently to lessen the influence of religion. It may be considered, said the gentleman, whether it would not be politic to tolerate in such a case. Johnson, sir, we have been talking of right. This is another question. I think it is not politic to tolerate in such a case. Though he did not think it fit that so awful a subject should be introduced in a mixed company, and therefore at this time waived the theological question, yet his own orthodox belief in the sacred mystery of the Trinity is evinced beyond doubt by the following passage in his private devotions. O Lord, hear my prayer, for Jesus Christ's sake, to whom with Thee and the Holy Ghost, three persons and one God, be all honour and glory, world without end. Amen. Boswell. Pray, Mr. Dilly, how does Dr. Leland's History of Ireland sell? Johnson, bursting forth with a generous indignation. The Irish are in a most unnatural state, for we see there the minority prevailing over the majority. There is no instance, even in the ten persecutions, of such severity as that which the Protestants of Ireland have exercised against the Catholics. Did we tell them we have conquered them, it would be above board. To punish them by confiscation and other penalties, as rebels, was monstrous injustice. King William was not their lawful sovereign. He had not been acknowledged by the Parliament of Ireland when they appeared in arms against him. I here suggested something favourable of the Roman Catholics. Top Lady, does not their invocation of saints suppose omnipresence in the saints? Johnson, no, sir, it supposes only pluripresence, and when spirits are divested of matter, it seems probable that they should see with more extent than when in an embodied state. There is, therefore, no approach to an invasion of any of the divine attributes in the invocation of saints. But I think it is will-worship and presumption. I see no command for it, and therefore think it is safer not to practice it. He and Mr. Langton and I went together to the club, where we found Mr. Burke, Mr. Garrick, and some other members, and amongst them our friend Goldsmith, who sat silently brooding over Johnson's reprimand to him after dinner. Johnson perceived this, and said aside to some of us, "'I'll make Goldsmith forgive me,' and then called to him in a loud voice, "'Dot Goldsmith, something passed to-day where you and I dined. I ask your pardon.' Goldsmith answered placidly, "'It must be much from you, sir, that I take ill.' and so at once the difference was over, and they were on as easy terms as ever, and Goldsmith rattled away as usual. In our way to the club to-night, when I regretted that Goldsmith would, upon every occasion, endeavour to shine, by which he often exposed himself, Mr. Langton observed that he was not like Addison, who was content with the fame of his writings, and did not aim also at excellency in conversation, for which he found himself unfit, and that he said to a lady who complained of his having talked little in company, "'Madam, I have but nine pence in ready money, but I can draw for a thousand pounds.' I observed that Goldsmith had a great deal of gold in his cabinet, but, not content with that, was always taking out his purse. Johnson, "'Yes, sir, and that so often an empty purse.' 
Goldsmith's incessant desire of being conspicuous in company was the occasion of his sometimes appearing to such disadvantage as one should hardly have supposed possible in a man of his genius. When his literary reputation had risen deservedly high, and his society was much courted, he became very jealous of the extraordinary attention which was everywhere paid to Johnson. One evening, in a circle of wits, he found fault with me for talking of Johnson as entitled to the honour of unquestionable superiority. Sir, said he, you are for making a monarchy of what should be a republic. He was still more mortified when talking in a company with fluent vivacity, and, as he flattered himself, to the admiration of all who were present, a German who sat next him, and perceived Johnson rolling himself as if about to speak, suddenly stopped him, saying, Stay, stay, Dr. Johnson is going to say something. This was, no doubt, very provoking, especially to one so irritable as Goldsmith, who frequently mentioned it with strong expressions of indignation. It may also be observed that Goldsmith was sometimes content to be treated with an easy familiarity, but, upon occasions, would be consequential and important. An instance of this occurred in a small particular. Johnson had a way of contracting the names of his friends, as Beau Clark, Beau, Boswell, Bozzy, Langton, Lanky, Murphy, Murr, Sheridan, Sherry, I remember one day when Tom Davies was telling that Dr. Johnson said, We are all in labour for a name to Goldie's play. Goldsmith seemed displeased that such a liberty should be taken with his name, and said, I have often desired him not to call me Goldie. Tom was remarkably attentive to the most minute circumstance about Johnson. I recollect his telling me once, on my arrival in London, Sir, our great friend has made an improvement on his appellation of old Mr. Sheridan. He calls him now... Sherry Derry. To the Reverend Mr. Bagshaw at Bromley. Sir, I return you my sincere thanks for your additions to my dictionary, but the new edition has been published some time, and therefore I cannot now make use of them. Whether I shall ever revise it more, I know not. If many readers had been as judicious, as diligent, and as communicative as yourself, my work had been better. The world must at present take it as it is. I am, sir, your most obliged and most humble servant, Sam Johnson. May 8, 1773 On Sunday, May 8, I dined with Johnson at Mr. Langton's with Dr. Beattie and some other company. He discanted on the subject of literary property. There seems, said he, to be in authors a stronger right of property than that by occupancy, a metaphysical right, a right, as it were, of creation, which should from its nature be perpetual, but the consent of nations is against it, and indeed reason and the interests of learning are against it. For were it to be perpetual, no book, however useful, could be universally diffused amongst mankind, should the proprietor take it into his head to restrain its circulation. No book could have the advantage of being edited with notes, however necessary to its elucidation, should the proprietor perversely oppose it. For the general good of the world, therefore, whatever valuable work has once been created by an author, and issued out by him, should be understood as no longer in his power, but as belonging to the public. At the same time, the author is entitled to an adequate reward. This he should have, by an exclusive right to his work, for a considerable number of years. He attacked Lord Monboddo's strange speculation on the primitive state of human nature, observing, Sir, it is all conjecture about a thing useless, even were it known to be true. Knowledge of all kinds is good. 
conjecture as to things useful is good, but conjecture as to what it would be useless to know, such as whether men went upon all four, is very idle. On Monday, May 9, as I was to set out on my return to Scotland next morning, I was desirous to see as much of Dr. Johnson as I could, but I first called on Goldsmith to take leave of him. The jealousy and envy which, though possessed of many most amiable qualities, he frankly avowed, broke out violently at this interview. Upon another occasion, when Goldsmith confessed himself to be of an envious disposition, I contended with Johnson that we ought not to be angry with him. He was so candid in owning it. "'Nay, sir,' said Johnson, "'we must be angry that a man has such a superabundance of an odious quality that he cannot keep it within his own breast, but it boils over.' In my opinion, however, Goldsmith had not more of it than other people have, but only talked of it freely. He now seemed very angry that Johnson was going to be a traveller, said, he would be a dead weight for me to carry, and that I should never be able to lug him along through the Highlands and Hebrides. Nor would he patiently allow me to enlarge upon Johnson's wonderful abilities, but exclaimed, "'Is he like Burke, who winds into a subject like a serpent?' "'But,' said I, "'Johnson is the Hercules, who strangled serpents in his cradle.' I dined with Dr. Johnson at General Paoli's. He was obliged, by indisposition, to leave the company early. He appointed me, however, to meet him in the evening at Mr., now Sir Robert's, chambers, in the temple, where he accordingly came, though he continued to be very ill. Chambers, as is common on such occasions, prescribed various remedies to him. Johnson, fretted by pain, "'Prithee, don't tease me. Stay till I am well, and then you shall tell me how to cure myself.' He grew better, and talked with a noble enthusiasm of keeping up the representation of respectable families. His zeal on this subject was a circumstance in his character exceedingly remarkable, when it is considered that he himself had no pretensions to blood. I heard him once say, I have great merit in being zealous for subordination and the honours of birth, for I can hardly tell who was my grandfather. He maintained the dignity and propriety of male succession, in opposition to the opinion of one of our friends, who had that day employed Mr. Chambers to draw his will, devising his estate to his three sisters, in preference to a remote heir male. Johnson called them three dowdies, and said, with as high a spirit as the boldest baron in the most perfect days of the feudal system, "'An ancient estate should always go to males. It is mighty foolish to let a stranger have it because he marries your daughter, and takes your name. As for an estate newly acquired by trade, you may give it, if you will, to the dog Towser, and let him keep his own name.' I have known him at times exceedingly diverted at what seemed to others a very small sport. He now laughed immoderately, without any reason that we could perceive, at our friend's making his will, called him the testator, and added, I dare say he thinks he has done a mighty thing. He won't stay till he gets home to his seat in the country to produce this wonderful deed. He'll call up the landlord of the first inn on the road, and, after a suitable preface upon mortality and the uncertainty of life, will tell him that he should not delay making his will. And here, sir, will he say, is my will, which I have just made, with the assistance of one of the ablest lawyers in the kingdom. And he will read it to him, laughing all the time. He believes he has made this will, but if he did not make it, you, Chambers, made it for him. I trust you have had more conscience than to make him say, being of sound understanding. <laughs> I hope he's left me a legacy. I'd have his will turned into verse like a ballad. In this playful manner did he run on, exulting in his own pleasantry, 
which certainly was not such as might be expected from the author of the rambler but which is here preserved that my readers may be acquainted even with the slightest occasional characteristics of so eminent a man mr chambers did not by any means relish this jocularity upon a matter of which pars magna fuit and seemed impatient till he got rid of us johnson could not stop his merriment but continued it all the way till we got without the temple gate he then burst into such a fit of laughter that he appeared to be almost in a convulsion and in order to support himself laid hold of one of the posts at the side of the foot pavement and sent forth peals so loud that in the silence of the night his voice seemed to resound from temple bar to fleet ditch this most ludicrous exhibition of the awful melancholy and venerable johnson happened well to counteract the feelings of sadness which i used to experience when parting with him for a considerable time i accompanied him to his door where he gave me his blessing he records of himself this year between easter and whitsuntide having always considered that time as propitious to study i attempted to learn the low dutch language it is to be observed that he here admits an opinion of the human mind being influenced by seasons which he ridicules in his writings his progress he says was interrupted by a fever which by the imprudent use of a small print left an inflammation in his useful eye we cannot but admire his spirit when we know that amidst a complication of bodily and mental distress he was still animated with the desire of intellectual improvement various notes of his studies appear on different days in his manuscript diary of this year such as inquavi lectionem pentaturgi finivi lectionem confabordonum legi primum actum troadum legi dissertationem clerici postremam depend two of clark's sermons l apollonii pugnam betriciam l centum versus homeri let this serve as a specimen of what accessions of literature he was perpetually infusing into his mind while he charged himself with idleness this year died mrs salisbury mother of mrs thrill a lady whom he appears to have esteemed much and whose memory he honoured with an epitaph in a letter from edinburgh dated the twenty ninth of may i pressed him to persevere in his resolution to make this year the projected visit to the hebrides of which he and i had talked for many years in which I was confident would afford us much entertainment. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear Sir, when your letter came to me, I was so darkened by an inflammation in my eye that I could not for some time read it. I can now write without trouble, and can read large prints. My eye is gradually growing stronger, and I hope will be able to take some delight in the survey of a Caledonian loch. Chambers is going a judge, with six thousand a year, to Bengal. He and I shall come down together as far as Newcastle, and thence I shall easily get to Edinburgh. Let me know the exact time when your courts intermit. I must conform a little to Chambers' occasions, and he must conform a little to mine. The time which you shall fix must be the common point to which we will come as near as we can. Except this I, I am very well. Beattie is so caressed, and invited, and treated, and liked, and flattered by the great, that I can see nothing of him. I am in great hope that he will be well provided for, and then we will live upon him at the Marischal College, without pity or modesty. X left the town without taking leave of me, and is going in deep dudgeon to Y. Is not this very childish? Where is now my legacy? I hope your dear lady and her dear baby are both well. I shall see them too when I come. 
I have that opinion of your choice as to suspect that when I have seen Mrs. Boswell I shall be less willing to go away. I am, dear sir, your affectionate humble servant, Sam Johnson. Johnson's Court, Fleet Street, July 5th, 1773. Write to me as soon as you can. Chambers is now at Oxford. I again wrote to him, informing him that the Court of Session rose on the 12th of August, hoping to see him before that time, and expressing perhaps in too extravagant terms my admiration of him, and my expectation of pleasure from our intended tour. To James Boswell, Esquire, dear sir, I shall set out from London on Friday the 6th of this month, and propose not to loiter much by the way. Which day I shall be at Edinburgh I cannot exactly tell. I suppose I must drive to an inn, and send a porter to find you. I am afraid Beattie will not be at his college soon enough for us, and I shall be sorry to miss him. But there is no staying for the concurrence of all conveniences. We will do as well as we can. I am, sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson. August 3, 1773 To the same, dear sir, not being at Mr. Thrale's when your letter came, I had written the enclosed paper and sealed it. Bringing it hither for a frank, I found yours. If anything could repress my ardour, it would be such a letter as yours. To disappoint a friend is unpleasing, and he that forms expectations like yours must be disappointed. Think only, when you see me, that you see a man who loves you, and is proud and glad that you love him. I am, sir, your most affectionate, Sam Johnson. August 3, 1773 to the same, Newcastle, August 11, 1773. Dear Sir, I came hither last night, and hope, but do not absolutely promise, to be in Edinburgh on Saturday. Beattie will not come so soon. I am, Sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson. My compliments to your lady. To the same. Mr. Johnson sends his compliments to Mr. Boswell, being just arrived at Boyd's, Saturday night. His stay in Scotland was from the 18th of August, on which day he arrived, till the 22nd of November, when he set out on his return to London, and I believe ninety-four days were never passed by any man in a more vigorous exertion. He came by the way of Berwick-upon-Tweed to Edinburgh, where he remained a few days, and then went by St. Andrews, Aberdeen, Inverness, and Fort Augustus to the Hebrides, to visit which was the principal object he had in view. He visited the Isles of Skye, Rezé, Col, Mull, Inchkenneth, and Iconkill. He travelled through Argyllshire by Inverary, and from thence by Loch Lomond and Dumbarton to Glasgow, and then by Loudon to Ochinlick in Ayrshire, the seat of my family, and then by Hamilton back to Edinburgh, where he again spent some time. He thus saw the four universities of Scotland, its three principal cities, and as much of the highland and insular life as was sufficient for his philosophical contemplation. I had the pleasure of accompanying him during the whole of this journey. He was respectfully entertained by the great, the learned, and the elegant, wherever he went, nor was he less delighted with the hospitality which he experienced in humbler life. His various adventures, and the force and vivacity of his mind, as exercised during this peregrination upon innumerable topics, have been faithfully, and to the best of my abilities, displayed in my Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides, to which, as the public has been pleased to honour it by a very extensive circulation, I beg leave to refer as to a separate and remarkable portion of his life, which may be there seen in detail, and which exhibits as striking a view of his powers in conversation as his works do of his excellence in writing. 
nor can I deny to myself the very flattering gratification of inserting here the character which my friend, Mr. Courtenay, has been pleased to give of that work. With Reynolds' pencil, vivid, bold, and true, so fervent Boswell gives him to our view. In every trade we see his mind expand, the master rises by the pupil's hand. We love the writer, praise his happy vein, graced with the naivete of the sage Montaigne. Hence not alone are brighter parts displayed, but e'en the specks of character portrayed. We see the rambler with fastidious smile, mark the lone tree, and note the heath-clad isle. But when the heroic tale of Flora's charms, decked in a kilt, he wields a chieftain's arms, the tuneful piper sounds a martial strain, and Samuel sings, The King Shall Have His Ain. During his stay at Edinburgh, after his return from the Hebrides, he was at great pains to obtain information concerning Scotland, and it will appear from his subsequent letters that he was not less solicitous for intelligence on this subject after his return to London. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear Sir, I came home last night without any incommodity, danger, or weariness, and am ready to begin a new journey. I shall go to Oxford on Monday. I know Mrs. Boswell wished me well to go. Her wishes have not been disappointed. Mrs. Williams has received Sir A.'s letter. Make my compliments to all those to whom my compliments may be welcome. Let the box be sent as soon as it can, and let me know when to expect it. Enquire, if you can, the order of the clans. MacDonald is first, Maclean second. Further I cannot go. Quicken Dr. Webster. I am, sir, yours affectionately, Sam Johnson. November 27, 1773. Mr. Boswell to Dr. Johnson, Edinburgh, December 2, 1773. You shall have what information I can procure as to the order of the clans. A gentleman of the name of Grant tells me that there is no settled order among them, and he says that the Macdonalds were not placed upon the right of the army at Culloden. The Stuarts were. I shall, however, examine witnesses of every name that I can find here. Dr. Webster shall be quickened too. I like your little memorandums. They are symptoms of your being in earnest with your book of northern travels. Your box shall be sent next week by sea. You will find in it some pieces of the broom-bush, which you saw growing on the old castle of Ochinleck. The wood has a curious appearance when sawn across. You may either have a little writing-stand made of it, or get it formed into boards for a treatise on witchcraft, by way of a suitable binding. Mr. Boswell to Dr. Johnson, Edinburgh, December 18, 1773 You promised me an inscription for a print to be taken from an historical picture of Mary, Queen of Scots, being forced to resign her crown, which Mr. Hamilton at Rome has painted for me. The two following have been sent to me. Maria Scotorum Regina Meliori Seculo Digna, Ius Regium Civibus Seditiosus Invita Resignat. Cives Seditiosi Mariam Scotorum Reginam Sesse Muniri Abdicare Invitam Cogunt. Be so good as to read the passage in Robertson, and see if you cannot give me a better inscription. I must have it both in Latin and English, so if you should not give me another Latin one, you will at least choose the best of these two, and send a translation of it. His humane, forgiving disposition was put to a pretty strong test on his return to London, by a liberty which Mr. Thomas Davies had taken with him in his absence, which was to publish two volumes entitled Miscellaneous and Fugitive Pieces, which he advertised in the newspapers, by the author of The Rambler, in this collection, several of Dr. Johnson's acknowledged writings, 
several of his anonymous performances, and some which he had written for others, were inserted, but there were also some in which he had no concern whatever. He was at first very angry, as he had good reason to be, but, upon consideration of his poor friend's narrow circumstances, and that he had only a little profit in view, and meant no harm, he soon relented, and continued his kindness to him as formerly. In the course of his self-examination, with retrospect to this year, he seems to have been much dejected, for he says, January 1st, 1774, This year has passed with so little improvement that I doubt whether I have not rather impaired than increased my learning. And yet we have seen how he read, and we know how he talked during that period. End of section 13